0: Good morning, good morning everybody It is 7.30, it is Sunday and that means one thing It means the 3CR Gardening Show My name is A.B. Bishop and I will be your host for the next one hour and three quarters Uh, Joining me in the studio this morning are two (laughs) Macedonians who really need no introduction, but I think it would be a little bit weird if I didn't introduce them and um, we get to hear their voices. So first of all, I would like to welcome from the other side of the great Perspex divide today, Stephen Ryan. Good morning, Stephen. Good
1: morning, A.B., and good morning to all our listeners out there. Looks like it's going to be a nice day. So it, it'll be a great day to be out in the garden.
0: I think so. First of our really sort of warmish days. Mm. And also uh, from um, Macedon, I would like to welcome our, I'm really sorry to say this, Greg, but our really resident fun guy, <laughs> Greg <laughs> Baldiston. Thanks. Good morning, uh, Greg. Yeah. The, the
2: only thing I stopped for this morning was at my front gate the uh the property over the road's just bulldozed the old um, hawthorn hedge yeah. and now i've got this beautiful view out to the uh to the east to some very old um geology and the sun was just poking its head up over the mountains and had to stop and take a couple of photos of that. I like that. Oh it's oh very yeah.
0: old geology, not not a mountain. No, it's <laughs> yes, very, yeah. very old well, geology. It's about 500 million years old, so I <laughs> yeah. guess it's well, reasonably by our old. Terms, that's yeah. very old. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, pretty old. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, dear. yeah. And, and beautiful morning too. Oh, yes, yeah. yes.
1: Actually, I'm not fond of the mornings where the sun is just getting to a certain level as I'm driving down to Melbourne because there's spots along the Calder Freeway yes. yep. where it hits you right in the eye and it's really hard to oh, see where you're going. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I prefer it when it's either slightly darker Or it's a little bit later in the season When the sun's higher up when I go come down But yes, this morning it was rather blinding Yeah, sometimes it mm. just
0: hits you at the wrong spot And yep. you literally cannot even see the road yes. I've got the opposite problem Because I'm coming in on the east And so oh. I have it in the rear view mirror Shining at me from oh, there, dear. So.
1: But anyhow, we can't complain Because I have to say As much as the rain and everything's been fantastic for the garden uh, Although I have to say The weeds have grown faster than the plants have, because a lot of plants really haven't started to mm. kick off yet, um, uh, it's been a bit too cold. I mean, I haven't even put in tomatoes or basil or anything like that.
0: Oh, I have. Have you? Oh. I put tomatoes in ages ago, and they sat and sat and sat mm. and weren't really sure about the whole thing. Yeah. And, but finally, we went away for a couple of weeks up to Sydney, catching up with fam, which was lovely, and uh, there was a couple of hot days mm. while we were gone, and they finally went oh all right we'll we'll, we'll start moving yeah i've got
2: a polytunnel and i might be picking a tomato in the next couple of weeks oh all right (laughs) then Uh. but that's cheating
1: yeah yeah it is yes 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 goodness me that
0: doesn't
1: count oh dear so yes i'll be pleased to get a little bit of warmer weather but let's hope we don't get one of those blasting hot ones Mm because everything is so soft and uh, things will burn. That, and that so it's something point. to be aware of. Um, because everything is so lush and, and soft uh, and hasn't really had to put up with much sun yet, um, if we get a day that pushes up into the mid to high 30s, things will burn. Mm. So you need to really. be aware. And
2: there's been no training weather at all, really, has there? No. It's, it, it's it, just it, been, yeah. I think the hottest day, uh, certainly at Mount Macedon anyway, has probably been about 25 Yeah, and... It felt like 45. I think yeah, we really we're so it well. yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah. Um, yeah. and you sort of think, oh, yeah, w- your body does get used to it over summer, but uh, when 25 feels like 45, you, you wonder how yeah. you're. What, we got, what <laughs> are we What have we got coming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, they are
0: predicting the El Nino um, continue until autumn.
1: Mm. Well, let's hope so. so. Uh, if it's going to if it's going to be here, it might as well continue uh, and just give us a gentle summer that we don't have to worry about. And we haven't had locusts for ages. No, we haven't had locusts <laughs> for ages. No, yeah, that, that could be the next thing. Oh, Dearie me! But anyhow, yes, the weather is the weather, and you have to live with it, whatever it's doing. Uh, but there's certain plants that have flourished in it. My giant chilli and rhubarb, Gunnera, uh tinctoria, that I've got growing up at the nursery, uh, which we did a uh, YouTube video of, which was this Friday's one, so the last Friday, I've never seen my gunner so big. It is just love this weather, and it's got leaves nearly as wide as this studio, if that mm. makes any sense to people, and and it's hit the top of the, the Shade House roof, mm. which is, in the old measurements, at least 10 feet high, yep. and it is
0: just vast. So it's <laughs> four metres wide.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just yeah. huge, huge, huge thing, and it's just uh, looking... Amazing. And yeah. prehistoric. And looking very prehistoric.
2: Although mm-hmm. I believe Gunneracea is a family. is actually not that old a family. It just
0: looks just like,
1: looks like <laughs> <it>. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they
2: do have that sort of ancient look. Even the little ground covery ones yeah. look quite yeah. simple and like yeah. yeah, they've been around for millions of years. Yeah, yeah, and
1: yet I don't think they are. I think they're a comparatively modern family. Okay, really. But how lucky is the person who had Gunner named after them because... Not only have they, and I did some research on this because of having the the program coming up and needing to film it all, Um, it was a Norwegian pastor called someone or another Gunnerus, and he was like a lot of these religious people back in the... Uh, 17th and 18th centuries um, spent a lot of time plant collecting, probably more than soul collecting, really. And uh, so he had the genus named after him. And then they discovered that the genus was monotypic, so he's now got a family named after him as well. So he's got Gunnera <laughs> and he's got Gunneraceae as well. So how how fortunate is that to
2: you know pick up that? So yes, he'll probably lump it in with something else. Soon oh something. yeah, I'm, I have to say I'm
1: struggling to keep
2: up, but anyhow, it yeah. is what it is.
0: Have you got any plants named after you, Stephen?
1: Uh, I've got a couple of cultivars, mm-hmm. uh, so it's uh, a dear friend named a day you after me, and another dear friend named a canner after me, so there's canner and day Stephen Ryan. Um, Does have a I- helle- hellebore too? No, no, uh, uh, no. Okay, right. No, no, that, well, it wasn't officially named after me, but, um, one of the, uh, hellebore growers, uh, raised some seed from a helleborus fetidus, which is one of the sort of small belled hellebores. And I'd got the seed originally from a plant that I collected often. I just thought it was a stunted plant, but it actually turned out to be a compact form mm. of helleborus fetidus. And my dear friend Michael McCoy had it growing up at Hascombe and he called it Stephen's Squat. <laughs> and it's at some idea. point later on, um, Peter Lee at, uh, at uh, Post Office Farm Nursery also had a label printed with Stephen's Squat no. on it, no. <laughs> which I didn't think was a particularly pleasant name, so I don't really want to take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so there was a hellebore out there. I don't know whether anybody's still growing it or not. I think I've still got a few of them growing in the garden at the nursery, but I haven't propagated it for ages. But it was actually quite a nice compact form because that hellebore in its normal form is inclined to be quite tall, and then it
2: flops. It arches over a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so... Just, it, just as it's sort of coming into flower often as yeah, well. when it's so
1: like, it sort of loses its it statuesqueness. <laughs> and uh, so a compact form is actually quite a good idea, but it was pure accident, and I'm sure they could have come up with a better name. But anyhow... Mm sometimes it's sort Was of Was it
0: funny.
1: a registered name? No, no. I, uh, as far as I know it wasn't and of course the trouble with registering names is that in most cases registration is dealt with by particular pertinent bodies who are in charge of a certain genus and there are lots of genera that don't have any pertinent body. So there's really no registration body that you can use. I mean you can register a trade name mm. if you wanted to mm. register yeah. as a trade name and you could register it under the plant breeders mm. rights thing but to actually register a cultivar name of a genus that doesn't actually have an overriding body you
2: sort of can't no. so w- would you just start calling it something yeah, and look, then posting it's, it's, it on facebook and yeah then yeah that's the only way you yeah. can really do it i think oh, um, that's i was going to ask you about that i've actually got an arum lily i think you've seen it yeah it's a arum italicum crossed perpurea spathum so it's basically an italian italian arum with a uh, dark burgundy black flower Ooh. and beautiful marbled leaves. It's really pretty. Might be a little bit weedy. Um, <coughs> not as bad as the italicum. I think I put it in my garden. Group. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd love to name it. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not into naming cultivars too much because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that probably shouldn't be... Oh, yeah, but look, so people named. name almost anything yeah. that's slightly different but and I that's think, a pain. I think this one does deserve something yeah. and I was wa- wondering how you would do that. Yeah, um, look, you probably could
1: go through the uh, one of the journals. So you could go through the, the uh, plant review, which used to be called the plantsman, but then they realised that was rather sexist, so they changed to the plant review. Um, but what you then have to do is you have to uh, uh, do it in the proper format uh, with the Latin description uh, and all that sort of stuff and have it sort of printed somewhere so that it then stands as a, that would be the type specimen almost mm. of, of the plant. But it's a lot of effort to go to, uh, and probably not worth it for the vast majority of plant material out there. Yeah. Um, so I would just give it, hopefully an appropriate name, Greg, give it something, a worthy name. Um,
2: so if you've thought of something, oh, that's good. I've actually named it after the first black hole discovered, but um, I'm not sure if it's a good name or not. It's uh, Cygnus X1, but uh, without the X1 bit. So it's just Cygnus, Cygnus, but then it goes into, can I call it Cygnus because it's... Got a Latinised name. Yeah, yeah. Even that, though it's the name of something rather than a. Yeah, look, you probably could get name.
1: away with that one. Um, yeah. But um, I have to say, the derivation of the name is is slightly obscure, so you might find that nobody yeah, yeah. will really get it. No. Um, if a plant is going to become, and this may never become a popular garden plant, I mean, No, no. Arums are you more know, likely a, to become I, a garden weed. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and, and arums are a sort of an acquired taste in some ways. Yes. Um, but the other thing I say about plant names is try and select something. Well, I think the black holy thing makes sense, although yeah. it's a little obscure. But try and pick a name that actually works with the plant. And, and represents
0: the plant. And represents yeah. the
1: plant. I mean, probably the world's best-selling rhododendron is pink pearl. It's a good name. Mm. It's crap rhododendron. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like pink pearl as a rhododendron. I think it's awful. Uh it has palish, yellowy green leaves. It's the pink of the flowers is slightly bluish, so it's really almost mauveish, uh so it's not a clear pink. But people can remember the name and the name has meaning because yeah. you know that it's going to be a pink mm. rhododendron. Yeah. So uh so it's an easy name to remember, whereas uh, far better rhododendron is rhododendron faggot's favourite. Now, Mrs. Faggota might have been a really nice lady, but it's a rather unfortunate name for a rhododendron, um, and it's never going to be a popular cultivar because people won't remember the name. And uh, they we'll will remember, remember that name, but they but not Not for good reasons. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not going to be one of those plants that sort of rolls off your tongue and you go into a nursery and ask for. Uh, so if you can pick a a, a simple, straightforward name that you know, sort of has something to do with the plant. I think mm. that's, that's always worth working towards if you think the plant might have some sort of commercial potential. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, one plant that drives me insane, I think the name is so stupid, is the um, uh, Canadian redbud with the dark leaves that they call Forest Pansy. Mm. I mean, it's got nothing to do with pansies. No, it's, uh, it's, it's good
2: for the nursery trade, though, because people keep planting it in, the, in a sh- shady position because yeah. it's called Forest Pansy, and yeah. then the thing doesn't yeah, do does well and dies out, is. and then they go and buy another one. Yeah, <laughs> so
1: it's a silly name. It, it yeah. has no connection to the plant. How it came about, I've no idea. Uh, there's a gold leaf one getting around now called Hearts of Gold, which I think is a very appropriate yes. name because yeah. the leaves are heart-shaped, they're yellowy-green. Um, it's a perfect name for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and yet there's a certain nursery in australia that's selling it as not as hearts of gold they're calling it chain of hearts or something stupid that makes no sense whatsoever it's the same cultivar so they've changed the name when they brought it in and that's another thing that rankles i get so annoyed when people change names just because it's
2: expedient i worked in the tulip uh, in the cut flower industry for a long time and tulips are notorious for the real name, which often is quite a hard to pronounce Dutch name, yeah. of course, mm. um, they come into Australia and they're sold as something completely different. Yeah. Uh, for years and years and years, and then people ask for that variety, and it doesn't exist. It's this other thing yeah. that's, yeah. you know... And they the, really
0: yeah. want that one, even though you say this one It's the same exactly one. It's yeah. no, 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 I yeah. really want that one. That one. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: just
1: give me a minute, and I'll go write the label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but no, look, I think the, the horticultural industry as a whole actually should stand up and sort of say, all right, we're a professional body, we should be using the right names and dealing with plants in the right way and do it professionally because people expect that I mean you do get people say oh, I don't want a botanical name but mm-hmm. we all know that they're really important mm-hmm. and who would go to a car dealership and have some car salesman say to you well not quite sure whether it's a Volvo or a Volkswagen <laughs> uh, but it's got four wheels and, and, and it's grey <laughs> yeah. um, you wouldn't buy it would you so why would you go to a nurseryman who sells you something without a botanical name on it or some made-up name on it, Uh, I mean, you really shouldn't. Uh, And I do get myself slightly worked up when I see things on Facebook where people say, I bought this at a certain uh, big barn – with no label on. And I'm thinking, well, why would you buy something without the label on it? you know? And I actually engaged with it once and said, well, I would suggest you don't buy things without labels on them, because how are you supposed to find out? And then I got this thing back saying, well, I can always ask people on Facebook.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I'm not going to win this one. Yes. Give up, Stephen. Yeah. yeah,
1: But, you know, really, at the end of the day, we should be professional. We should have proper labels on things. We should try and keep up to date with names, although, as Greg and I both know, and as you probably know as well, AB, it's pretty hard at the moment. I think the
2: thing, the important thing, though, is not, especially for uh, people in the nursery industry to go out of their way mm. to write wrong labels and to misname yeah. things and cause mass confusion about um, what plants are and what they're called. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So I think it's really important that
1: we at least try and get some continuity in the, in the industry. Um, and yes yeah, so people whinge about the name changes I know it's difficult I whinge about it as well but now that they can count genes and chromosomes and all those things they can now do you've just got to write it out now yes yeah, yeah you it'll just got to keep with it out at some point oh yeah, yeah it not
2: change ever again
1: <laughs> but sometimes like uh, Greg I don't know whether you're aware but you probably were aware that the um, Chinese potophyllums had a name change a while yes, back yeah. and then they became Disosmas. Yep. so the genus was split up well now it's back again Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's incorporating another genus that's called Diphilia, uh, because the Chinese potophyllums and the North American ones were morphologically different enough that if you brought them back together again, then you really had to incorporate Diphilia, yes, which yep. was at the other end of the extreme. Oh, so the genus has now become a bigger one, whereas up until recently, and after I finished getting my labels printed, um, <laughs> it was three different genuses. So... Maybe <laughs> these people
0: who are making the name changes are the uh, people who own the label company. Yeah, well, again, <laughs> you, you do wonder about those things,
2: but I think that's called a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it's uh, it. nature in any form, whether it's astronomy or botany, doesn't like to be pigeonholed. So when, once we start putting labels on things. Yeah. It'll and we a like to label yeah, things. Yeah, that's exactly. uh, human yeah.
1: nature is you want to so pigeonhole everything. Um, Makes it easier. Yeah,
2: it, yeah nature always seems mm. to find a way to go, actually, here's something in between that doesn't fit into either of your pigeonholes yeah, well, exactly. that you've created. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so it is a bit awkward. Um, but I was talking to somebody the other day, a
1: friend of mine up in the Dandenongs, and he said, once they've changed a name, there should be a 10-year moratorium before they can do it again. Yeah, no, that's not a bad idea. You right? know, so that <laughs> there can be at least some stability until such time as the rest of the research is done and then they make their hopefully final decision on which way they're going to go with these mm. things because that's happened to me recently with several things the potophyllum was one example of a name change that i've now got to get used to going back to again um, i'm actually not that upset about it i think it works quite well so i think it's probably a good idea mm. but there's lots of people out there whinging about things like rosemary ending up in the selvia genus uh, there's all sorts of examples of plants that are well known under a certain name mm.
0: got sucked into banksia
1: oh yeah. Yes. Well, yes, well, I believe there's a certain botanical artist who will not accept <laughs> that change because she <laughs> yes, she painted all of the banksias and if you dump dryandra in there, then she hasn't painted all of the banksias. Yes, and for anyone
0: <laughs> that doesn't know, that's Celia Rosser yes. and well worth reading. Oh, who wrote book um, on oh. Celia Rosser? Was it Caroline? Oh, the name eludes me now, but yeah. definitely well worth yeah. reading all about her. And a wonderful artist. Yes, beautiful mm-hmm. artist and all about her travels. She uh, went... On location for every single banksia and yeah. painted it in situ which yeah. is really and incredible.
1: has a species named after yes. her lucky woman so yes. she's got a self-portrait as well <laughs> she <laughs> she's got a self-portrait <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. yes i want the pa- original painting of banksia rossii oh, wow. wouldn't you love to have yes, that Yes, for sure yeah for so sure. yeah so there's something very special
0: Yes, well, everyone, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Ab Bishop, and I'm in the studio with Greg Bolderston and Stephen Ryan. And I should also mention we have a special guest. So if anybody yeah. can hear the pitter patter of little feet, we, sure have, Tri- we yeah. have Trixie in the studio with us today. And she's wandering around, yeah. making herself at home and in, yeah. enjoying She her. seems to
1: quite like the radio she station. She does yeah. like <laughs> the radio, yeah. Checking yeah. it out. Yeah. Oh, so, um,
0: yeah, we actually do not have any community announcements this morning which well, is not well it's getting on to Christmas it's getting on yeah to Christmas so I guess there's not an awful long are, happening. Yeah, so I should open up the lines what a good and idea. we can um, accept calls as per usual now mm. so you can ring in and have a chat to us uh, you can ring in on nine four one nine oh one double five you can still text us if you choose Oh four double eight eight oh nine <laughs> eight double five. Or you can email us for next week, so we won't be able to get to it today. But Mm -hmm. if you want to send an email, we're at gardening at 3CR, so just the numeral 3, cr.org.au. So feel free to text us or give us a call. Mm. uh, You can get
1: in touch with us in all sorts of different directions. I know, there's just no hiding anymore, is there? No, there isn't. (laughs) (laughs) And probably we should mention too, the plants that we will in due course talk about, um, we always send photos to the Dear Liz who yes. puts them up on our social media feeds yeah. we used to take pictures of everything and put them up there and then of course we didn't get around to talking about everything nice. so it, it created some confusion for people mm-hmm. so what we're doing nowadays is when we finish the program the plants we've actually spoken of um, we're going to hopefully put up images so that people can see what they look like yeah. um, and I might add there's at least one of the plants I'm going to be talking about that I've actually done a YouTube video on so you might even like to go in and look at it that Excellent. way as well so I'll mention when we get to
2: that point. Excellent. And, and I, I completely forgot all that, so I took a picture of all my things together this morning and sent them before the All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, so Greg has just thrown yeah, our whole system out. Well, that you, just Greg. means we have to talk about all the things <laughs> I brought in. Oh, right. well, oh, there's, there's well, a the wicked...
0: Part, is there only two general... Well,
2: it's only two genus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that shouldn't be too hard. Yeah, so that, yeah. that, that should be good. All
0: right, well, why don't you kick us off,
2: Greg? Yeah. Okay, well, th- th- uh, um, I was in a, a couple of weeks ago and bought some Gladys and thought, oh, these will be the last... Pretty much the last gladiolus of the season, but because of the season that we've had, um, one of my favourite all time gladiolus flowered about two days after I was on the show last, which is uh, the Gladiolus colvillii ruba, which is a hybrid between Gladiolus tristus and Gladiolus cardinalis. Um, it's a great Greek's little plant, it's fantastic. So, Basically when they're in the in bud they're almost like a creamy, silvery white on the outer side of the petals. So you're expecting yeah, this a pale sort of really sort of. pale gladiolus mm-hmm. and when it opens up it is the richest, darkest raspberry raspberry yeah. red. And with these beautiful the cream markings on the on the lower pet on the lower petals. Um it's quite a strong grower too. I'm mm-hmm. I'm surprised it's not available more in the nursery trade. It's just it should be. It's an absolute stunning Yeah, it, uh, it multiplies
1: reasonably quickly. It yep. flowers quite fast from small corms. Mm. Um, so you should be able to build it up in quantity. And fairly it's got quick. nice
2: foliage too. It's got yeah. quite, quite compact foliage. It's not big, broad leaves that you get on your hybrid gladiolus. So yeah, really that then look dreadful when they yes, die down. Yeah. 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 Um, they're quite, the, 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 the foliage on it takes more after the tristus side of the family, which are very, uh, thin, sort of. They're rib, almost rib like leaves. rushy type yeah, leaves. Yeah, very not interesting sort of leaves. Broad actually. leaves. Gladiolus tristus has got really interesting foliage on it. Um, and it's also one of the, usually, one of the last flowering Gladiolus, too, I find out of the. It's not really a species one, but I lump it in with those because it's more species like than the horrible big hybrids. Um, You've just offended so, Dame, uh, Dame uh, Edna now. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and there's also a lot of new species hybrids in the gladiolus that look absolutely amazing. Again, Craig Gardner up in Sunbury has some, mm. uh, I think Tristus, uh, not Tristus, um, Lilacius hybrids mm. that are just stunning. So they, they've got these amazing colours. I'm not sure if they change colour at night time like uh, Lilacius does Or have the perfume mm. But I'm sure There'd be a mix In amongst some Of course Some would. of the colours Are amazing Yes, yes um, And people don't think Of perfume in Gladys As a rule But yeah, there are was, some Quite good perfume Changing co- a flower Actually changing colour From day to night yeah. And then changing back again Is is remarkable The first mm. time I noticed that um, I, I, It was actually uh, uh, Tonkin's had a bulb stand up At Mount Macedon Rare plant Oh there, yeah. mm. And I'd just finished Setting up my stall And I was about 10 o'clock at night and I thought I'd have a quick whip around. Yeah. And I saw this uh, beautiful mauve gladiolus on this on, on the plant stall. And when I went back the next day, I'm looking for it. And there's all these orange ones everywhere. And it's like, well, that's weird. I'm sure there was a heap of purple ones where those orange ones are. And it took me a while to figure out that they're actually the same gladiolus. Oh, <laughs> they change colour at night time.
0: That is tricky. Um,
2: yeah, isn't it yeah. amazing? The plant world has got some really weird things that go on that people are just not aware of. Mm. Yeah, you've got to go out in your garden at night time. There's all sorts of amazing and things. And then, out will they
0: come back to? Yeah,
2: yeah, they, change they change back, back again. <laughs> and and not only that, but um, I've found in if you have thunderstorms, so if you have warm, humid weather while they're in flower, the so at night time when it's much cooler, they'll go this sort of mauvey purple colour. When it's warm and sunny, they'll be this sort of terracotta orange sort of colour. But if you get a thunderstorm mid-afternoon, I've got ones that will turn green or mm. grey or um, a deep purple with grey through it or any combination of those colours. They're, they're just the most amazing plants. Yeah, I,
0: I wonder if that's got anything to do with pollinators, attracting the different types of pollinators that come out at different times. Yeah, it might be, a, it'd be interesting to check
2: it with the UV light and see if they yeah, reflect UV differently I'm sure when they, they change colours mm, too. Yep. But they, they're moth pollinated because they have a perfume at night time. Yeah, yep. The pollinator scenario over in South Africa is pretty wild, so yeah. there's, they uh, have all sorts of strange pollination <laughs> yeah, yeah. techniques and things going on yeah. over there so and the other gladi that's uh, similar is another one of the Colvillei, uh hybrids uh, called Albus um, and it 's essentially a white form, so it's still again it 's got the same sort of uh, it 's quite a strong grower, it multiplies quite well and it 's a beautiful clear white. Uh, small gladiolus, again mm-hmm. with the compact foliage, very similar habits, um, except instead of having these beautiful raspberry red flowers, it's a pure white uh, mm-hmm. flower. And, um, you,
0: and you were saying earlier that it's really unusual to have them still hanging around.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, most of these things... Uh, except for one gladi that I've bought in, um, most of the bulbs should have died down by now. Mm. Like yeah. I, I've been—I was whipper snipping daffodils the other day and just saying, "Die! Like it's time <laughs> to go to sleep. It's, yeah. It should be gone." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Well, I ran over the freesias
1: in the lawn the other day, even though oh, they were still greenish. To you too. Yeah. Well, they'd finished their flowers <laughs> and, and and they'd had time. They'd had more than enough time to feed their bulbs for next year. But sometimes um, I think and the it grass can was getting rank.
2: It can stress them a little bit too if they've. Growing season's a bit long, I, I, I think. Yeah. It's, you get that. Um, I know from sending bulbs overseas, uh, especially to cooler climates, the bulbs will come into season when they should, when mm-hmm. they expect to. Um, but because they're in a cooler climate, they'll grow for much longer than they should. And it can sometimes almost peter the bulb out to nothing. So you send a, quite a nice size bulb and it'll just cre- keep growing and yeah it seems to stress the bulb out or or tire it out a little bit sometimes not everything but certain things can do that um but yeah the 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 daffs it's just ridiculous though it's
1: like just die yeah (laughs) yes you need to go down and (laughs) daffodils are coarse and ugly enough after they finish flowering the the sooner they die down the better really you don't really need to see them and of course because we've had such a damp season the grass has been growing like mad Mm. so you end up with this
2: tall meadow where you were going to have a lawn. Mm.
1: <laughs> so you've well, got to get in there at some The point.
2: real problem will come in sort of January, February when it should be dry for these bulbs and it's not. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the South African and even daffodils too mm. like a dry February. So if we've got, still got this sort of weather in January, February... Yeah then the following season might not be a good bulb season. Yeah, Um, Particularly if the soil
1: is a bit on the heavy side because it's going to hold moisture and not drain away. So that could be an issue.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I want to come back to the gladioli or gladiolus. Mm. Um, But we're going to go to uh, Olive in Frankston. Hi, Olive. Hi. Uh,
4: Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all. You
0: too. Thanks for waiting. How can we help? Uh,
4: I've got a gardener and he told me to... um pull up the Irish japonica and give them a rest for the for the, for the summer. I don't know what to do. Um, I've got about 50 and they, they do expand, you know, they sort of walk. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of them and I don't know what to do with them. Is it, it correct to pull them up and give them a rest after about
3: 10? Irish
1: japonica, I wouldn't. You wouldn't. No, no. Some irises, um, particularly the bulbous type irises, uh, need a good summer rest. And if we're having a damp season, it's a good idea to lift them and get them up. Uh, I mean, the little dwarf reticulated irises and things certainly don't want to be damp during the winter beca- or during the summer because they'll just rot. Um, but some of the other irises, though, they may not flower as well next year, but uh, it would certainly be simpler and easier to let nature take its course
3: but they
4: they do they do walk, you know, they sort of walk towards us from under the tree where they have been towards the sun. Yes. But, um, but they're inclined to sort of go underneath the border and into the, onto the lawn at the
3: moment. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: that, that's just a management issue. You will have to manage them and stop them from doing those lift things. Lift those ones. Yeah, lift those ones <laughs> <laughs> and take them out. Um, yes, but um, I wouldn't be lifting all your irises. I mean, I think life's too short to be making life really hard work for yourself. Um, yes, and I think they'll be fine.
0: Thank you very much. Or Thanks, Olive. Bye, Bye for now. Uh, yes, yeah, someone has uh, texted in Greg saying, "Amazing gladi story, especially about the color changes." Yeah, and, and
2: there's a whole group of them too. There's uh, another which is probably uh, one of my favorites as well. well You've a got, got a lot of favorites, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is uh, Gladiolus recurvus, which also changes color at night. It's much more subtle. Um, it's sort of a uh, during the daytime, it's almost a brownie. It's mm-hmm. a brownish colour. It's this sort of browny purple, and then at night it's a purpley brown. Mm-hmm. So it's it's much more subtle the the colour change, but it's definitely there. And again, it has this beautiful perfume, and it's it's one of those perfumes you only get it once a year for a few weeks. Although Lilacius, depending on where it came from in the wild, can be spread over quite a few yeah. months. And I think I've got seeds from quite a few different places in the wild because I'll have some flowering in you know, late August, and then I've still got some flowering in late September, early October, sort of, so, um but to go out at night time and stick your nose in these things, it, it's just, it's it's the best mm. smelling flower, I think, I've <laughs> stuck my nose in it, it's not quite as strong as some things, but. Strength, strength yeah, of no, uh, perfume
1: after. can actually be a disadvantage. There are certain things that have such a clo- cloying, strong scent mm. that I find them a bit nauseating. Yeah. Can't stand the smell of jasmine at close quarters. Yeah. You know, so your normal jasmine and polyanthemum. I think it's just over the top, and I just makes me gag. I can't stand it. Very
3: rich.
2: It is the best way to pollinate gladiolusulaceus is by nose. Mm. So you just get your nose in there at night time and swizzle it round. Pretend you're a moth. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Um, And it's something you can immerse yourself in, and it's not too strong. Mm. It's this beautiful sort of peppery sweet. um, It's it's a freesia type perfume, I guess. Yeah. So so it's uh, um, absolutely stunning plant in all respects and as I say there, there's a number that change colour at night time um, there's a number that have perfumes um, they're, they're, and if you collect gladiolus the species ones uh, from different parts of Africa uh, from north to south you can pretty much have a different species of gladi flowering nearly every day. I think there is uh, It is quite there, a remarkable there, genus yeah, that there, there, there's, there, I think there is a gladiolus in the wild or there was because um, yes, some, some of them, are, them aren't growing yeah. in the wild anymore <Sssson> yeah. and some of them aren't growing at all. Uh, but there would have been a gladiolus pretty much in flower every day of the year somewhere in Africa <Ssson> on the continent. Yeah.
0: <Ssson> How many species have you got?
2: Uh, less than I used to. <Ssson> mm-hmm. um, I think at one point I had about 70, well 70 or 80 or something like oh, that. Which is quite a serious Ten- collection. Yeah. Um, and hopefully all the important ones I've passed on to someone else who still grows them, mm-hmm. the ones that I may have lost. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, and there's some that are quite, uh, you need a, a working uh, gene pool of them or else you're going to lose it. So there's, there's a beautiful little gladiolus called gladiolus stellatus, um, which is more like a hesperanther almost. Yeah, it doesn't that, have a gladi look about it, does no, it? No, it's, <laughs> it's got a symmetrical flower and it seems to flower from first year seeds. So, so within two years you'll have them, they'll all be flowering. Um, and it's quite a dainty little little thing. Um, but because of that, it seems to have quite a short lifespan. So if, you're not const- if you don't have a deep enough gene pool where you can cross-pollinate them and get seeds and then re-germinate it, you're gonna, you, go, you will definitely lose it at some point. They're just not very long-lived. Mm. Um, so you've got to constantly be making sure they're pollinated and you're collecting the seed and re-sowing it. Ooh, that's, that's not that's going to the engage the average home gardener, yeah. no, is it? Yeah, no, no. They, they do it <laughs> themselves a little bit. And it's sort of the surprising thing too is that a couple of times I've thought, oh, I've definitely lost it, it's gone, I'll never see that again. Uh, I had quite a nice one that had a dark purple stripe down the petals, so it, it was um, yeah, a very pretty little one. And uh, so I hadn't seen it for about four or five years, and then this year one popped up and flowered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, well there you go, maybe the seeds' they they're in most of the uh, most of the rarer ones are still in pots, yep. yeah, so it 's probably one of the few genus I still tend to a little bit because I do love gladdies so as as a kid the one of the first bulbs I ever grew as a kid uh, at about eight or nine were hybrid gladdies from tesla 's mm-hmm. um, and it 's actually colville iuba that i 've talked about before um. That was the first sort of species one that I saw and thought, oh, there might be something a bit different than these big sort mm. of chunky things mm. that don't really have much uh, subtlety to them. <laughs> and there was. As I say, there's uh, a beautiful array of things uh, in the in the genus and all sorts of sizes, from little tiny things a few inches tall right up to and this is species ones, right. one, one, Ones that'll get up to six or eight feet tall. Uh, one of the uh, Gladiolus stelleni, which is probably one of the forebears of the big hybrids. I yeah. think. Yeah, I
1: think it's blood is definitely in the yeah. big flouncy um, so ones.
2: I've got one of those at home that uh, you know gets up to yeah at least eight or eight or nine feet tall. Some spikes on it sometimes. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very interesting genus. If you, if you wanted to start a bulb collection, I reckon Gladys are one of the best things to start with because they're generally fairly easy, yep. even some of the rarer ones. Um, and there's just a really good variety of them. Yeah. Um, one, yeah, one so of the you don't get bored. No, no. And mm. one of the first pure species ones I ever bought, of course, was from Stephen because that was the only place one when around. I was a, yeah. a kid that you could find something like that. Uh, was actually one called Gladiolus citrinus, which I think's changed... Oh, lumped yes. it so it's with something, else. something or another now, Yeah, I think. or something. But Why do they give it a bigger name? That's not well, clear. Well, there, there, there was an existing yeah. species of that that I had, and mm. they look completely different, so I don't know what they were thinking when they lumped the two <laughs> uh, together. Yeah. They, but it's, it looks like a crocus. It looks like a small yellow crocus. Oh, yeah. It's got upper, up-facing flowers, symmetrical and wiry little uh, leaves... Um, and absolutely stunning, and and I remember getting that off Stephen when I was maybe 14 or 15 or something. And uh, that's now extinct in the wild, and I don't think anyone really sells it anymore. I've sent sent some to the the New York Botanic Gardens because they didn't have it. Um,
0: do you feel a really strong sense of responsibility?
2: Yeah, you do. And, and I think, as I say, you don't just go and buy a bulb of something. Try and get seed yeah. and mm. get a working gene pool of these things because it's far more important to be able to produce seed off these. Yeah, than to have the three, one. One bulb or something. <laughs> yeah. And share them. Share them with people that you know will look after them and appreciate them. Uh, so, you know, these things are around in, in some time. And Citrina shouldn't be around because I'd treated it terribly uh, in my late 20s and completely forgot about it. And it's ama- amazingly survived in the ground at, at uh, my house for about five years, completely neglected. And then it's like, oh, that little wiry leaf, that's that gladiolus citrinus, and dug it up hmm. and managed to slowly get the numbers up. It doesn't produce I seed. I you going to
0: say you dug it up and it died. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> After years it it doesn't Bible. seem to produce seed, which is
2: un- a, an un- a, a very... Uh, unlike gladiolus trait, because yes. they're quite promiscuous gladis usually, but this doesn't seem to produce seed, so it was only yeah trying to get this thing to multiply by bulb and getting it out there as best I could. Yeah. While I, yeah. And um, it doesn't
1: look like a gladi, I have to say. When people see it, they no. think you're sort of having them on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: it looks like a, a Romulia or a, a, a Crocus or mm. a Sternbergia or something like mm-hmm. that. It's a, a small little up-facing Flower. It's, it's quite pretty, though, yeah. Yeah, fabulous. So there
0: you Well, since I've been, um, I'm now Hort Consultant at Gardening Australia Mag, and one of my roles is to do the marketplace plants. And um, so I'm always searching for, for new plants to, to show. And uh, we, we put in some uh, bulbs from uh, Tonkin's Bulbs. Yeah. And it sort of opened up a whole new world for me. So we're focusing on um, autumn flowering bulbs. And I also chatted with Lynn from WA Bulbs. Yeah. And they've got a bunch over there. And and it's a whole... A whole new world to me. These autumn flowering bulbs. Mm. I, I was one of those people who definitely just think of bulbs as being spring flowering. Yeah. But things like the nerines and the lachanalias or actually the lachnelias are a bit later, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But the Lycoris and all. There's a whole bunch of oh, some lovely autumn flowering. Things. And the colchicums and crocuses were all my favourites yes, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um.
2: Yeah. that and and it's that also uh, convergent evolution thing where you see all these different plants that are completely unrelated come up with the same uh, solution yes. to a problem. yeah yes. uh, Whether it's storage or pollination or whatever it is, um, again and again they find either really weird, different ways t- to solve a problem or the same, you know, completely different plants coming up with yeah. the same solution for the problem. It's, it's uh, quite interesting to, you know, sort of once – once you start seeing these things and – Understanding the family, history, you know, where, where how these things have evolved and where they've come from, and uh, it, it's really quite interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I was surprised, and I don't know why I was surprised because you buy a tulip for plant for growing in spring, and you plant it and it grows. But there's a lot of the autumn flowering bulbs you can plant sort of now and or maybe a bit later January, February, and you'll have your first display that autumn. Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah well, the colchicums were always. Uh, a, a mystery to me as a kid and again one of the bulbs that got me interested in bulbs were, were colchicums mm-hmm. because the old garden I grew up in had them mm-hmm. um and you 'd see these just these flowers pop up out of the lawn with no leaves, just these flowers everywhere because they they 'd been there for quite a long time um and then they'd disappear and then it's like well are they parasites are they what's, yeah, what's yeah well, how here? does this plant survive and it, it's yeah it took quite a long time to figure out that the those big Glossy leaves that came up two or three months later were actually <laughs> the same Yeah, the yeah. same plant, yeah. I went through the same
1: process as a small child mm-hmm. in yeah. our garden. I had these big leaves and I couldn't figure out what they were, yep. and I didn't connect it for quite some time to those lovely yeah. mauve flowers that came up at a different time of the year.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, so unless somebody points it out to you, it can take you a while to figure yeah, it out yeah. for yourself. Yeah. So, the other two gladias I had, just so I can get them out of the way, yep. is uh, Gladiolus gidei, which is actually a summer growing gladys, mm. gladiolus, probably from more subtropical areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you had this in a quite uh, wet summer area, it would also be a problem. It's not a problem where I am because yeah. it, you, it's mm. always pretty dry, and I keep it in a pot anyway. Um, and this is a slightly white form. It usually it's usually more of a mauvy pink, but again, because I grew it from seed, you do get slight seed variation, and sometimes you get something really stunning out mm. of that seed variation. And this is so that's the white Gladiolus gedei um and uh for much further north this is uh, gladiolus tenuus which is one of the north african mediterranean gladiolus species and quite small uh and like most of the North African Mediterranean gladiola species, they all look pretty much the same. They're yeah, just they're all that sizes. sort of strange <laughs> um, livery, purpley colour. Yeah.
1: Um, and you're right,
2: they, they're bigger or smaller. They're smaller,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, about the only but difference. But occasionally you get a white form of mm. one
2: or a, or a slightly pinkish or a, a slightly almost black form. There's some uh, mm. beautiful Atroviolaceus is uh, basically the sim- similar gladi, but it's almost Black, like a plum, a black plum colour. It's yeah. absolutely stunning. I mm-hmm. tried to grow it once and never got it to flower. Um, but this Gladiolus tenuus has got, uh, quite a compact little flower. It's a, it's a dark sort of mauvey purple, um, nice little markings on the throat. And again, because if you've got a working gene pool of it, you get them sort of self seed a little bit around. Yeah. And, um, and a lot, most of these gladiolus grow in grasslands too, mm. so they don't actually mind being in amongst weeds or grasses and, you know, if you can naturalise Which is a good them. thing considering they're hard to tell apart from some of the grasses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll stop your whippersnipping yes. uh, for a little while. Um, and ag- again, that will that well and truly should have finished flowering by now, but they're, they're still popping their heads up and, and uh, I was surprised how many gladdies there were when I went out uh, last night to pick a few things for today.
0: Fabulous. And when the ones that you grow in pots, what potting mix do you use and how often do you change it?
2: Well, I used to change it nearly every year Mm -hmm. because I'd be wanting to see what the bulbs were doing. But um, as I say, most of the things I grow now uh, are things that need to thrive on neglect because I just don't have the energy (laughs) to put things up every year uh, anymore. So uh, uh, the potting mix I use, which seems to work overall, but um, was just any premium Mm -hmm. potting mix, sand-based. And I would, I had this fascination with scoria, so I'd, um, I'd, when I was sowing seeds, for instance, I'd have quite a little ritual where I'd sift the scoria and potting mix into different grades and put layers in the pot, and it seemed to work well because everything I sowed, generally, I had something come up. Mm. Um, uh, so most of my potting mix, mix now has either river sand, wash river sand, or, or different grades of scoria. The, the, the benefit from, I found from scoria was there's no real small dust in it that causes the potting mix to clog up. Mm-hmm. So drainage is one of the most important things. And every stage of scoria breaking down into powder seems to be well-drained. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, if you get blue metal and mix it in with potting mix, the, the dust off blue metal is, uh, can form quite a layer uh, impermeable to water, where scoria doesn't seem to do it. It, mm-hmm. always, it always seems to soak in quite quickly. Yeah. So um, there are certain things that don't like scoria, though, uh, which, yeah, I, some things I used to grow quite well until I started using scoria, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, what happened to that? Yeah. Um, but not yeah, everything's so going to want exactly the no, same thing. No, that's, right, the, that's the thing. That, you know, yeah. yeah, and it did. It did seem to work generally pretty well for most things. But essentially, well drained pot, well drained potting mix. Yep.
0: Um, and one one bulb per pot is that your? Oh thing, no no. Uh,
2: try try uh, them in. Try and keep them in those clusters so yep. they're easy to pollinate. Yep. And um uh you know try try to, I guess the idea is to try and grow them as close as you can, to what you they would have. In the wild, mm-hmm. so um, for instance, the Gladiolus tristus and uh, from flood uh, floodplain Gladiolus and the lalaceus that I was mentioning before, that they, they grow in floodplains, so they can handle much heavier soils, mm-hmm. and they need quite wet uh, conditions during their growing season, which is pretty much what they would get in the wild. Yep. But of course, they still need to dry it in summer. So. Um, where there are other Gladys that you wouldn't put in heavy potting mix at all. They'd just rot straight away. Even in the growing season, they'd probably rot out. Um, and so what size pots do you put them in? It depends how many. But, yeah, yeah. so uh, usually eight-inch pots mm-hmm. and up. Mm-hmm. So, so if I've got more than three bulbs, I'll put it in an eight-inch pot and yep. then just leave it for years. Yep. And hopefully it'll... Uh, and one thing, which is part laziness and uh, neglect, and part, again, because I think that's probably more close to what they would get in the wild, is I let weeds grow in them as well. Especially over the summer months, mm-hmm. uh, the weeds can actually really help with drainage. So if there's an excess of moisture, uh, the weeds will suck all that moisture up. Yep. And... Um, Yes. Very uh,
0: good justification. For yeah. Not well, weeding. and it also <laughs> the, the roots <laughs>
2: of the weeds actually hold a little, retain a little bit of moisture too, which because yep. a lot of those bulbs don't li- like to dry out completely either, um, or be baked. So the the weeds keep enough moisture in there, get rid of the rest and also act as a little bit of a cooling I'm going to say that when layer. I get back to the nursery to anybody who picks yeah. up a plant it, it, with a whole it's of liberating. It it's, it's liberating. It <laughs> liberating Stephen. Yeah. You just yeah. go, oh, the
1: are there for a reason. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear.
0: Mm. Oh, very good. All right. Somebody has text in saying, saying, uh, viburnum with small glossy leaves with white ball flowers and some pink in the middle of the flower is growing like mad after pruning can I prune it again? Um, it was bunching up in the m- middle, um, ooh, and she would like a smaller shrub.
1: Well, I have to say, if somebody's got to prune something more than once a year to keep it in bounds, then it's probably the wrong plant in the wrong place. It's it's going <laughs> to it's always what? Yes, unless it's a hedge. <laughs> um, but you know, if you keep pruning a viburnum like that and do it more than once a year, then one, you're going to end up with something that is like a piece of topiary because it's going to get very dense and, and bushy. And, of course, pruning, people think pruning controls something, but pruning generally invigorates things. So if you prune something hard, then it's going to go into lots of growth.
0: It's, it's still uh, got
1: the roots underneath. Yeah, exactly. So it pushes it up. It up. Yeah. So it sounds to me like if you want a smaller shrub than this plant is making, um, then for me the, the thing to do would be to shift it to somewhere where you can allow it to be a bigger shrub and find something
2: smaller growing for that particular spot because I think you're just going to be fighting it forever. You know, yeah. But if, if, you, mm. if you want to keep it, maybe wait till mid uh, to late autumn before you, you dig it up. Oh, yeah. yes, I wouldn't shift now. Right. Even
1: though we've got a cooler season and you might get away with it, it's still not it's the not thing worth, to do. It's worth the risk no. if you want to keep mm. it, no. Yeah, so that's what I would be doing. I'd be thinking about moving it on because it sounds like the wrong plant.
0: Excellent. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and I'm in the studio with Stephen Ryan and Greg Boldiston. Stephen, let's talk about one of your many, many, many many I want to talk about
1: this one because it will be finished flowering in the next few weeks and I might not see it for some years again. Uh, This is something I did do a YouTube video on, if you want to go in and have a look at it. It's one uh, we called uh, um, monocarpic plants, I think is what what we called it. Uh, Monocarpic plants are a plant that grows for a a defined period of time, generally more than a couple of years, uh, and then flowers and dies. So they only have one flowering um, incident, and then they die. And this particular plant is for Craya. Uh It's a Mexican yucca relative, um, and for Craya is monocarpic. So you get this huge single rosette of leaves like a giant yucca, generally slightly grey-green, mm-hmm. and it will live for 8, 10, 12 years or more, and you could end up with something about 3 metres high, about 2 metres wide, just one big single crown. Mine decided to flower this year, so this was the sort of the end of a cycle but the beginning of another one, and it sent up what I could only call a 20, 25 foot flower spike, uh, and it's like a big candelabra. The spike comes up, and it's got longish branches coming out off the lower parts, and they recede as smaller and smaller branches till you get to the top, and it has these amazing limey white um, bells that are hanging on at the moment. There must be literally thousands of them. Um, So the plant's growing tip is where the the flower stem comes from, so there's nowhere for it to go after that point. So it'll flower, obviously set seed, and die. But it has another strategy, uh, and that is that when the flowers all drop off, the flowered stem will actually produce what we call little bulbils on it. So you'll get these little plantlets that will form on the stem. So although it will produce seed, it rarely actually multiplies by seed it, uh, the whole plant will die and it will drop these bulbils to the ground and they will take root and the next generation comes along from there so you can have a slight excess mm. of fur crayers when one does this because oh, it can
2: produce some hundreds of bulbils <laughs> so you've got to be quite careful about how many you keep otherwise well, i've still got some in six inch pots that i grew <laughs> from seed when i had the nursery about yeah. eight or so years ago ones of which that i put in the ground yeah. are flowering this year yeah. So i've got some at a friend's place in wood end uh, she's got two that are about the same height as the ones you've just said yeah um, and they are the most dramatic thing. When you see them in flower, they are really
1: remarkable. And uh, uh, it's sort of a uh, monoc- monocarpic plants are sort of a bittersweet thing because they normally do something very spectacular when they do it. Mm. But they only do it every so many years, and then that's the end of a cycle. So then you've got to start off with young ones again. But um, I think it makes it all the more interesting mm. because it isn't something that you know, it just happens every year.
2: Well, you just buy a new one every couple of years or so yeah and just have a new one and coming along has
1: got a different one flowering every yeah. year or so yeah well you can and i remember a friend of mine who's got a property over at Lauriston had planted about half a dozen of them th- in a sort of a wavy line through a big bed and they all flowered together mm. so she had the furcraea opening party and so we all had to go over there drink champagne look at the fir have some nibblies uh and so it was basically just a damn good excuse to have a party really um so for crayers, uh, so that was a wake really it was a wake yeah. yes it away um and of course the corpse that you've got to get rid of after is actually something <laughs> of an issue because
2: you've got this huge biomass of stuff yep. that you well, have to the, get rid of the flower stalks are a good you know what six inches through the oh the base, yeah, they? yeah yeah they're
1: really big so you've got this quite huge biomass and of course you've got all these strappy yucca-like leaves as well that take ages to rot down so it does take quite a while to get rid of the corpse um but it is really dramatic now there's some dispute about names. It's normally sold, this particular one, and you see it around the traps a bit, uh, as for Craya bedding Um But the Kew botanic gardens in England would tend to suggest that it's either a synonym of something else or it's had a name change or whatever, uh, and they're calling it uh, Um So, um, but it's, yeah, there's, it's a small genus. I think there's only 15 or 20 different species. Some of them aren't monocarpic. Some of them grow as masses of rosettes like some of the yuckas do, uh, but there are a handful of them that are monocarpic. And one would say, well, why would you bother growing for eight years flowering and then dying? There's actually a really good reason for monocarpy, and that is that if something flowers every year and there is, say, a bird or a mouse or something that likes the seeds if it's flowering every year, the animal predator will build up to a critical mass and it will keep eating most of the seed every year. But if you take eight or ten years to decide to flower and drop seed, then the predator's not going to have time to build up mm. when there's a big mass of, uh, of food there, so a lot more of the seed will survive. And that's the technique that some of the bamboos have, and they've taken it to an incredible uh, level because some bamboos have been known for well over hundred years
2: and they still haven't flowered. Mm. Caters use the same thing as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so going dormant for mm, you know just years. popping yep. out every yep. uh, you know on some years. prime number or yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: So, yes, yeah, so by doing it that way and being irregular in what you're doing, it actually can be of benefit for you um, in a uh, long term. Process. Mm-hmm. So, if you want a plant that's going to have everybody going, "Wow, what the hell is that?" Uh, when it flowers, then for crepe bedding house is well worthwhile uh, having a look a, at. It.
2: The, it's not just the flower either. The, the foliage. Uh, yeah. There was one at a garden in Wood End I planted years and years ago. It's probably where I got the seed for the ones that I grew. Yeah. Um. And the year before that flowered, the it looked like the top of a pineapple. So that mm. the leaf foliage is like this giant pineapple yeah. top or as you say, the, the, the uh, um, yuckers, yeah. uh, this thing would have been oh, at least three metres tall yeah. from the ground. It was on a slight stalk, and then this beautiful glaucus blue mm-hmm. uh, huge leaf rosette mm-hmm. that was yeah three-odd metres high and nearly three metres wide. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a very, nice, very striking-looking, yeah. perfectly symmetrical, big star-shaped leaf structure. Beautiful. It was absolutely yeah. beautiful.
1: So it's a, it's a great plant. And, of course, being um, from the climate that it comes from, once it's in the ground and, and settled, you don't have to do anything. No. You know, Occasionally you might want to go in and clean a few dead leaves off the bottom, but that's about it. You don't have to water it. You don't have to feed it. You don't have to do anything to it. It just does its own thing
0: and will you let it go through its whole life cycle or
1: yeah yeah i'll let it go through its cycle i'll then collect some of the (laughs) bulbils i'm going to be very cautious that i don't collect too many uh the others will have to get destroyed because i just don't need that many for crayers um so i'll collect some some of the bulbils i'll pot some up i might put some into the nursery for sale i'll plant a couple of new ones out in the garden somewhere at home so that i've got the next generation coming along um and um yeah I, i don't need masses of them i mean one or two in the garden is generally enough because they're quite big bulky plants so they mm. take up a lot of space and you do need to plant them with what, above, what is above them in mind. If you put them underneath the eave of the house or somewhere where How the flower spike can't mm. sort of keep going up and do its thing yep. um, you could have some issues when it tries to flower because you, you've really got something that's of the dimensions of a small upright tree. Yep, It mm. is just
0: huge. Actually I saw a pencil pine that had been planted a little bit too close to the eaves of a um, underneath a, a double story and it hit to the, the underneath uh, and, and curled down and was heading back <laughs> down again. <laughs> yes
1: you do have to think about above I, I, I have learned this lesson very uh, very well over the years that if you're going to plant something in the garden at least look up mm. before you start planting um, because you know the power line's there or there'll be some other tree canopy above you uh, I've got a client who's got five Woolamai pines in the garden and I've got a get the gardener to deal with the fact that they, one of them was planted reasonably close to an elm tree and there's actually an elm limb now coming over the top of the my pine and it's going to rub the top out of it unless we actually take some take of that canopy out, yeah. up.
2: I'm so, sure trees do that on purpose sometimes too. I've got a couple of gum trees at home that have sent a branch directly out to something else I've planted yeah, and yeah. it's completely out of uniform for the rest of the tree, it's just this one odd branch that's yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you growing in, out, yeah. I'll just grow over the top of you and, <laughs> and sort you out. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, so that's the fir craya. and another plant I'd
1: like to talk about, um, well I've got several I can talk about as the program goes on, but another one that I think is really interesting, I have a great passion for the flora of the Canary Islands and the Azores, so all that Macronesia part off the coast of Africa. Island floras develop really interesting, strange and different characteristics. And the canaries and the azores have a whole range of fascinating plants. And there's a group of shrubby foxgloves that for a long time were called isoplexus. Um, And the one I bought in this morning is actually isoplexus canariensis. Uh, genetically they're found to be so close to Digitalis, the true foxgloves, that they've actually sunk them into that genus. So they're shrubby representatives of the Digitalis genus now. And so this one is officially um, Digitalis canariensis. And it makes a moderate shrub, metre, metre and a half, can get quite bushy uh, in time. And it has these sort of long spikes of slightly finger-like Curved foxglovey flowers in the most remarkable shades of sort of coppery oranges mm. and things, these they're sort of very, bronzy oranges.
2: The flowers are, always remind me of the acanthus, which I'm sure are probably close related. Are they the acanthus to the digitalis? No. They're not.
1: No, they're. is a different group. I'm just trying to remember where the foxglove belongs in its family
2: yeah. thing. I must look it up. I thought they were related, but that the, digi- the, the digitalis canariensis, the flower yeah. head, reminds me a little bit of. A much finer, nicer looking... Yes, um, a canvas. It's it's got that sort
1: of look about it. Um, And if you look inside, the stamens are a really fabulous, dark, Burgundy mahogany colour, um, so it looks like sort of stripes inside the trumpet, but it's actually the stamen sitting up against the top.
0: Scrophulariaceae. Oh, of course, it's Scrophulariaceae.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, so quite different family. Yep. I should have realised that. Why didn't I? Snapdragon. Think, yeah, the Snapdragon mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, Scrophulariaceae is a family of plants that was named after Scrofularia, which is of course in that family, um, and it was named because it had knobbly um, tubers on the roots that looked like a scrofulous tumour. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, a scrofulous, yeah, whatever a scrofulous tumour looks like, that's apparently it. Uh, so that's how the plant family got its name. So there's only a handful of these shrubby ones from the Canary Islands. Canaryensis is one of the more regularly seen ones. They've now produced a whole range of hybrids between the shrubby ones and some of the biennial and uh, perennial digitalises, so there's this range of hybrids out there that they were calling digiplexes, yes, um, yeah. and still are in lots of cases, but it should just be digitalis, whatever. Um, they're sun-loving, they're reasonably drought-tolerant, they're not fussy about soil as long as it's well-drained.
2: Um, they're a fairly easy-going group of plants, yeah. actually. Uh, I, think drought, I, I think I you mentioned it, they're drought-tolerant too, yep. is, is once they've sort of settled in, they don't seem to need any moisture at all. No, they're, they're, no they seem to cope quite well, which is not unexpected considering the climate
1: mm. of the Canary Islands where they come from because it's a seriously Mediterranean-style climate. Mm. And, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's a wonderful plant. So Digitalis canariensis, well worth looking out for, as are the hybrids that have been produced from it. But I think the species is as good as any of the hybrids. A lot of their hybrids have got that pinkiness that the other Digitalis have that have mm. come into it, but it's sort of still got the apricotty-orangey colour. Yep. And it's sort of weird and interesting, but I think the sort of almost terracotta colour of this is... I think it's unbeatable, personally. I think it's just lovely. It's so stunning. And, and it has good glossy, deep green, narrow leaves, so the plant itself is quite pleasant when it's not in flower. And when it's finished flowering, just trim it back a bit to keep it compact and bushy and clean off some of the uh, the old spent flower stems. It's not a hard plant to manage. Hmm. So uh, it's
0: a perennial in the true sense of the word perennial, not a herbaceous perennial. That's yes, right it's a, yeah,
1: it's yeah. A, it, it certainly is a true perennial shrub, yep. so, but not a hard woody shrub. So that's uh, Digitalis um, canariensis, which I think is lovely.
0: Very pretty. So we got Very anybody good. we need to deal with? Well, with? we do. Yes, someone has texted in uh, to say, how hard can I cut back our Darwinia sea spray? And do they cope with being moved? um surprised. Uh, I'm surprised it needs pruning yeah. usually the darwinians don't need pruning as much they're quite a dense yeah bush-y uh, smaller sort of thing, shrub think, yeah. yeah with um as as the name would suggest with nice lemony scented foliage yeah. um sweet little plant. In the Motasi family. So, I mean, look, I would suggest you could prune it back by about a third. You'd probably if go if over it with the head shears to, almost, yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, because it, it is does form almost like a topiary yeah. type shape. Um, could you move it? Yes, I would say you would, but I wouldn't probably wouldn't be doing it now. Yeah. I'd wait till autumn. Uh, But yeah, I'm I'm surprised that it does Because usually they're not very leggy or anything like that They usually hold their shape pretty well Maybe
1: this one's growing in too much shade or something Mm. Maybe it's been drawn out by that
0: Maybe, yeah Yeah. But uh, yes, can prune it back And yes, you could certainly move it Yeah, There we go There we go Uh, I have seed pods hanging from my forest lily Flower is finished It's the first year I have grown them What to do with the seed pods?
1: Ignore them. Lily. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what they mean by a forest
2: lily. Uh, I've seen Cardiocrinum, but yeah, I, mean, I was that's, hang. Yeah, that, that, that's what sort of I was <laughs> yeah. thinking to start with. But that, the, the the term lilies, the coveralls, oh. uh, quite it could
1: confusing. Be a Gloriosa, yeah. it could be Gloriosa, it could be an Arum. Be, it could be uh, so <laughs> many different things. Now, what you do with seed pods is either ignore them because there's no reason why you shouldn't. In the wild, they just sit mm. there, drop their seed, and, and Start the next generation potentially. Um, if you don't want the plant expending uh, energy on seed, and you'd prefer it would flower better next year, then you're better to take the old flower heads off when it's finished. Whatever it is, it mm. really doesn't matter unless it's monocarpic. Yeah, unless it's monocarpic, <laughs> then you've you, you've you've buggered up the whole thing. Um, but if it's a bulb or something like that, and you want it to put its energies into next year's flowers, well, it doesn't hurt to remove the flower spike after flowering if you don't want the seed, uh, or you can let it. It, ripen on the plant, collect the seed and sow it but keep in mind a lot of plants and I'm still not quite confident what this forest lily is but a lot of these things, if it's a bulbous plant, it might take many years for the seedlings to actually get to a point of flowering again. So there's a sense of needing a lot of patience with mm. some of these things. I mean, some of Greg's gladdies will flower quite young from seed, and, and
2: some other bulbs will, in fact, uh, come c- up and flower col- quick Colchicums sometimes don't germinate for 8 to 10 or 15 years yeah. before they even germinate, and then you've got another 8 or 10 years to get them to flower. Yeah, yeah. so you need to start doing that when you're 12.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're on a hybridizer. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So... Yeah, so some plants, you've got to wonder whether it's worth it, other than for the actual fun of doing it. I mean, the process can be fine. Um, Well, Greg remembers this gentleman very well, I guess. Um, Had a lovely old gentleman friend called Barney Hutton, who used to live up at Mount Macedon, and Barney passed away in his mid 90s. And he was still sowing peony seeds when he was in his yeah. 90s. And I've I mean, actually
2: got an ixia here that came from, from his, seed. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. So, you know, and
1: I've got a tree peony in the garden at home, yeah. which is peony ostei, just a big single white one that Barney had raised the seed of. Probably sometime in the last few years of his life, he probably didn't see it flower. Mm-hmm. And when he passed away, one of his daughters and I went in and did a bit of pillaging because we knew the property was going to be sold off, and there was a few valuable things that we felt needed to come out of the garden because. lots of valuable yeah well and they weren't going to be looked after and they weren't as it turned out so a lot of stuff would have been lost so um, uh, we went in and dug quite a few things and she wanted some of the peonies to take back to Canberra where she lived uh, and I thought well I wouldn't mind a peony as a remembrance of Barney Mm. so I dug this unknown seedling up out of the garden it was quite a nice vigorous plant uh, and popped it in my garden at home and when it flowered it was this beautiful single white peony Mm. ostei and it's just lovely so every year when it comes in a flower. I know Barney probably never saw it in bloom, but it reminds me of him every year. Mm. And so the thought of sowing tree peony seed in your 90s has a certain charm about it. I mm. think I might head in that direction if I manage to live that long.
2: It's a lovely thought because it's, it's the same with, you know, not hoarding, if you're collecting rare bulbs of, or any plants, yeah. not hoarding them, like share them with other people and grow them from seed and yeah. try and diversify the gene, like yeah. the, the gene pool rather than... Uh, you know, coveting it. And, yes, and yes, I've got the yeah, only I've one. I've got the only yes. one, And, <laughs> um, and uh, my, one of my earliest memories of horticulture is actually helping Barney fill up a water bucket at the old hall oh, uh, in yes. Mount Macedon for one of the Mount Macedon Horticultural's flower shows. Yeah. Uh, yeah, helping Barney fill up this uh, bucket on the side of the old hall yep. before it was burnt in Ash Wednesday, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, we. I think Greg
1: and I both have great fond memories of some of those serious sort of happy amateur gardeners that lived around the Mount Macedon area who were part of the horticultural society and got involved in all the flower shows and went to all the meetings and a
2: remarkably interesting man too and and his wife (laughs) yes they they
1: were serious characters (laughs) um and horticulture often seems to acquire that sort of person you know they have the right sort of temperament to get involved in gardening and so you do meet quite a lot of
0: nerds they're called Stephen
1: is that what it is yeah. I was going to say interesting eccentrics <laughs> yes, is what yeah. I was going I would to have say said that too. So, Yeah, yes I wouldn't say nerds um but uh yes yeah, so we're all hitting in that direction <laughs> <laughs> if we're not already there yeah. and some would say I probably am um but yeah so um yeah so that's a really important facet so um and Barney was one of those people that you know Somebody should have named a plant after Barney. Yes, definitely. in fact. Yeah, you know, yeah. He de- definitely deserved it. He collected early species and, and uh, hybrid gladdies, and he did a lot of work on trying to re-identify some of the early ones. He became a peony fanatic, mm-hmm. and so he grew oodles of peonies. But his taste in plants was quite eclectic, uh, and he had an amazing array of things that he was growing in his garden at Macedon. And uh, in its heyday, his garden was fantastic. We used to open it regularly for um, garden opening days with the flower shows and things like that. Um, and he lived right behind the CWA hall where we used to do a lot of our flower shows. So he had his own little gate through the fence and he'd go backwards and forwards mm. to the hall with bits and pieces. And he'd bring interesting plants along to meetings. So it was
2: amazing to have such a small garden, a lot of which was lawn. yeah. And probably more species of plants in that tiny space than most people's five-acre gardens.
1: (laughs) And I might add... Interesting plants, you know. He yeah, had, yeah. you know, he had really rare and interesting things that he'd acquired from all over the place. So the garden was full of all sorts of really top notch garden plants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very. Uh, he didn't keep rubbish in his garden. I mean, if there was something there that wasn't performing or wasn't particularly interesting, out it would go, and he'd make space for something much more precious. Mm-hmm. And so his his garden was really really good. So I
0: think meter for meter, Macedon really punches above its weight in terms of uh, horticulture. Oh, apple, does it? And what? The gardens that are there and the the plants. Yeah, the well, the, of the
1: history plants. of the gardens up on Mount Macedon is fascinating. I mean, the, the the plant material that's up there. You've got to remember that a lot of those those gardens were developed way back in the 1870s and mm-hmm. even in some cases slightly earlier um, and that was before
2: quarantine and you know ag departments and plus a nursery that was one of yeah. the biggest ones in the southern hemisphere that yeah. was, was, was just out of the road yeah. importing stuff yeah. in yeah. directly I had Mount this Macedon. vision
1: of Mr uh, <laughs> Sangster sitting at his probably beautiful Georgian desk uh, with his uh, fountain pen or his quill uh, writing letters to all of the homeowners on Mount Macedon saying I have just imported XYZ from England and mm. I have a limited number and your garden deserves one
2: mm. you know, <laughs> <'cause>, you know <laughs> yeah, the, uh, and suck- he, he wrote a lot of letters when he imported the, uh, the um, uh, monkey puzzle Yeah, because uh, they, they seem to pop up all over Victoria and they seem to all come through Tales and Saints as nursery I, I think, think a lot they of they, them did yeah. and Mount Macedon is actually the epicentre for
1: monkey puzzles in the state we've yeah. got more monkey puzzle trees on Mount Macedon in different gardens oh, around it, than anywhere else in the brilliant. state and I think I think Alton's got seven. Yeah, yeah. One major one, but yep. there's others dotted all around the garden. And uh, yeah, they were a high Victorian tree, yes. if there ever was one, the monkey puzzle.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, so. someone, someone's written in to suggest that the Forester lily could have been the Valthemia bracteata. Not yeah, it's possible. Again,
2: it's a common name problem. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yes. It's just, it, is. it could be five things. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But valthemia is a possibility, which for those who don't know it, it's a, um, a South African bulbous plant that grows up to about half a metre. It has pink in general, there's yellow forms, but pink sort of tubular flowers it sort of looks a bit like a red hot poker flower really mm. um and it has sort of wavy edged leaves it's a very handsome thing and it does like a little bit of shade so it could in fact be those and yes you can raise them from seed but they take a wee while to start flowering from seed but then they don't multiply by the bulb all that vigorously either so and they're not a lily and they're not a lily yeah <laughs> <laughs>
3: <Doesn't laughs> you're right Greg they're not
1: a lily um that lily term does really rankle because there's just so many it's inappropriate a tough ones one. it's yeah. a tough one because
2: mm. a, as you Say so it could be anything, well, literally dailies, anything. Dailies
0: yeah. lilies aren't lilies, are they? No. They're really not true lilies? No. no. Well, then
2: so you've got things like lily of the valley. Yep. Yeah. I mean, a completely different
1: plant family. So, yes, any, anything, anything that's called a lily, i look at twice to see what we're mm. really looking at. I mean, lily should probably only apply to lilies. Yeah,
2: that's, that's, that's what, yeah. what the
1: genus that name <laughs> really belongs to. Mm. But you've got arum lilies, you've got calla lilies, yeah. you've got, you know, giant Himalayan lilies, you've got all these and different genera. it does, genera- there's
2: certainly one, plants with common names with the lily in it that you know exactly what it is straight away. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. it's that's, the forest lily's not one of them. Yeah, yeah so, so it could lily. be velthemia though, they could be right. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we do like our listeners.
0: And we were talking about the Banksia book earlier, which is called The Banksia Lady, and Chloe, thank you, Chloe, uh, text me to say Carolyn Langdon, uh-huh. is the author, I'd forgotten the name. Um, really good read. If you want a, a Christmas holiday read, get The Banksia Lady. Yep. Um, yeah, and learn something as well. And apparently Carolyn also has recently written A History of the Cranbourne Friends Group. So oh,
2: that would oh, there you go.
0: Pretty interesting read. Good. All right. Who's, who's oh, Steve's work? got
2: a hydrangea. And I, oh, yeah, okay. Hydrangeas were yeah. one of my first introductions yeah, to yes. being obsessed and with plants as well. So, yeah, so, yeah we should and talk about hydrangeas. One. Hydrangeas are it an is, interesting it group. It is time, isn't it? Yeah, it is yeah. time. Uh, the Hydes are
1: starting to come out, so there's quite a number of hydrangeas that are starting to bloom at the moment. And this is another genus that's had something of an interesting and checkered history, because a whole pile of related plants have now been sunk into hydrangea. So the schizofragmas, the pilastgias, uh, the, Dic- the dicroa, uh, the dichroa, the schizofragma. All these other related plants are now lumped all into hydrangea, which sort of makes sense. Uh, but hydrangea's got more to it than just a lace cap and a mop head hydrangea, which are the sort of common things that people see around in their gardens. And one of the groups of hydrangea that I'm particularly fond of, and people go, really, when you say this, are the climbing hydrangeas. Mm. Uh, they're all self-clinging climbers like ivy. They have aerial roots and they'll run up a wall. So if you've got a fence or a wall or a tree trunk, as long as it's not really dry shade under the tree, because Heidi's don't like that. Uh, they certainly like a little bit of shade, but they don't like it too dry. Um, And the thing about self-clinging climbers like these hydrangeas is if they hit the top of a wall or fence or whatever they've got to grow on, then they just send out adult wood, which has the flowers on it. So they don't end up as this sort of unstuffed mattress hanging off the top of the fence like you know your average clematis or wisteria or anything else that's a climber wood. So they will fill an allocated space. And if they've got nothing to climb on, they'll actually make sort of moundy bushes. Um, and, in fact, I was in somebody's garden on Thursday that had this particular one, which is Hydrangea c. manii, um, as just a bush, mm-hmm. and it grows perfectly well as a shrub uh, with all its heads of lace cat
2: white flowers. So at this the time. habit would be almost like a weeping
0: no, it's yeah. not really,
2: it seems to come up from You'd the bottom. I think it
0: would be. Yeah it, it yeah, it has upright stems rather up than yeah.
2: cascading down yeah, as a
1: yeah, grain. No, it has yeah, upright right. stems, the flowers sit up on the tops <laughs> of these stems, so it grows just like an average bush. Yes. Um, now, it could grow to the top of a 70 foot tree uh, if the conditions are right, so it will just keep growing if it's got the space to grow. Mm. And I've seen them growing in um, North America, growing up. Um, um, sicker spruces and Douglas firs and things and growing virtually to the top. Yeah, right. You know, so that, and I've seen some of its relatives, there's one called Hydrangea integrifolia that grows in Chile, and I've seen it growing right up the side of the southern beaches, growing right up into the trees, it must be 60, 70, 80 feet up into the trees, uh, with the, and the flowering wood comes off the side, like, ivy mm-hmm. if you grow an ivy in the garden which we don't encourage people to do uh, but if you're growing ivy in the garden you know that it will grow up flat on the wall when it hits the top of whatever it's got to grow on it will send out side branches with a leaf change the leaf will become more simple it won't be the same ivy shape uh, and then it will produce its flower heads on that the same thing happens with the climbing hydrangeas so they have their um they're non-flowering, so I guess sterile climbing wood, and then they produce their adult wood on which they flower. So if you've got one growing on a wall and bits start growing off the side, don't prune them off. <laughs> I have regularly had people who say, oh, I've had it in for 10 years, and you know, I prune it and keep yeah. it in nice, neat form, and it's never flowered. Uh, <laughs> and that's because they've been cutting all the potential flowering wood off their climbing hydrangeas. So I've got this one, C. manii, which, by the way, is evergreen as well, so it hasn't leathery glossy evergreen foliage on the south side of a house that is a brick house that the wall's been bagged with concrete and it just grows up on this wall and there's bits of it that have grown up and around the spoutings and things but they just sit there. It doesn't often go up and then start climbing along the spouting so it's comparatively easy to manage and it's coming out with these massive lace cap white flowers at the moment and Cimanii is really interesting as a hydrangea because anybody who's looked at the floral parts of a hydrangea will realise that the flower sort of just erupts out of the top of the stem as it goes up. Hydrangea C. actually produces large flower buds. Mm. And then they break open and the flower comes out of that. Oh, lovely. So it's a, and, and they're big. They're you know, sort of walnut size or more. Um, so you've got these big green flower buds and then suddenly they explode with these lovely white lace cap flowers. And I think they're fantastic plants. And if you really think about it, it's probably one of the very few self-clinging climbers that will grow in shade and flower. Mm. You know, so, I mean, ivy will do that too, but it's flowers like well, that. And, 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 and is
2: controllable and you actually want it there. Yeah, that's yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it, it's never going to become weedy.
1: Um, and so if you want something that has lovely flowers in the summer, um, that you could grow on a south facing wall or a wall where there was a lot of big trees over the top and what have you, um, and you didn't want to put up a whole pile of infrastructure to grow a climber on, and in fact, Climbers in the shade are always a problem because most climbers by nature run up through trees and shrubs to get to the top. Mm. So when they get to the top, that's where all the leaves and flowers will be and they leave their bare legs behind. So there's not many climbers that will clothe something in the shade. Mm. And so the climbing hydrangeas, uh, whether they be a deciduous or an evergreen variety, um, are definitely worth a close look at because they are just fabulous. And, I mean, that's a lovely clear pure white. So you can imagine that stands out really well in the shade. And um, I think they're just fabulous plants. But people don't quite get their head around the climbing, self-clinging climbers. They try and stick them to the wall. And that normally doesn't work. All you do is you plant it against the wall. If you can lean the stems into the wall, all the better. But otherwise, just stick a brick against them or a bit of wood so they can't move. Mm. And they'll sometimes take 12 months or more to really get their act together. But once they've caught hold themselves, then it's off. Mm. And my plant of this hydrangea Manii is, as I said, on a south-facing wall. And it's covering most of the wall, which would be 30 feet long and it's grown around the windows and what have you and I just prune it back if it sort of starts to grow over the windows too much where people can't see out Um, and um, about once a year I do a bit of a clean up with it Mm. always make sure I leave plenty of flowering wood on it so I let it sort of stick out off the wall Um, and because it's on the south facing wall it doesn't get particularly dry there so I don't ever remember actually physically going out to water it, because uh, it stays quite moist where it is. It's got very little good soil against that wall. It's actually quite clay stuff there, and I just did a little bit of soil preparation when I planted it. Um, and it's as healthy as Larry. And it comes from Mexico, um, so it will cope with the fairly high temperatures and high
2: humidity, as long as it's not out in the direct sun. It's mm. a really interesting Heidi's from the Americas. Oh. The... More unusual ones, uh, often not always the prettiest ones but certainly the more unusual yeah. ones are oh. radiata and yeah, abarescence yeah. and yeah there's some gorgeous and, uh, yeah. and the climbing ones do radiate round the world and
1: I remember reading there was a book written by a gentleman with the hyphenated name of Haworth Booth oh, yes. in England it was and the, the hydrangea bible for yeah, a yeah it time. was it yeah. was the only book you could get in English that sort of uh, described the vast majority of hydrangeas and I can't remember what the species name was but he talked about a climbing evergreen hydrangea that had been discovered in the Philippines and I must pull my book out at some stage and see if I can find it again that supposedly had
2: red bracted flowers yeah, I think I remember reading about that too Yeah,
3: yeah. I want it yeah yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't care what its name is if I could get the evergreen self-clinging red flowered climbing yeah. hydrangea I would be very a climbing lily yes it's a really climbing lily glim- 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 yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I think that they're a great group, so you can get evergreen deciduous, you can get quite small leaves in these climbing hydrangeas, you can get quite large gutsy looking foliage, um, there's one called um, moonlight that has a sort of a greyish cast of the leaves with dark green veins, yeah. beautiful leaves, mm. um, there is one that's slightly pink, uh, but in general they're white flowering. Um, so, um, I think they're, they're much underrated and beautiful plants. So, yeah, climbing hydrangeas, look at them. I've never
0: even heard of them.
1: No, most people haven't. And this is probably where this plant sort of falls between stools. Because if somebody's looking for a hydrangea, they're not normally looking for Mm -hmm. a climber. Mm -hmm. And if they're looking for a climber, they wouldn't think to ask for a hydrangea. Absolutely. So, the, the actual group of this genus sort of falls between stools and people don't know it's there it's like if somebody comes in asking for a jasmine they're obviously asking for a climber but there's some shrubby jasmines that people mm. don't know about so yeah not all plants fit the normal sort of parameters that we see a genus as mm. so yeah the climbing hydrangeas are fabulous and there's a surprising number of them how uh,
0: long does that one flower for
1: i'll have this in flower for about two months over oh, the lovely. summer uh, which is not bad. I mean, if we get some really hot weather, the flowers will go over more quickly. But if it stays... Cool like this, they'll actually possibly go on for three months. Mm. Um, so the lace cappy flowers don't tend to hang on the plant as, as well as mop headed varieties do. They tend to stay on plants longer. Um, but yes, it certainly ha- it pays its way flowering wise and the rest of the year its foliage is handsome. Yeah.
2: The, the bracts on what used to be schizofragmas mm. last a little bit longer though. Yeah. Don't they? They're more leaf like bracts on those. Yes, so they, they're a little harder. They're, they're few, mm. There's fewer of them but they uh, they tend to last a little bit longer, so they'll green off and yep. yeah, sometimes um, get that autumnal look. Yeah, mm, so like yeah, so I think hydrangeas need to be relooked at by some people. Mm. And I
1: might add, even amongst the shrubby hydrangeas, there's so much diversity. Yes, you know, uh, I was just potting up some gold leafed oak leaf hydrangeas yesterday. Mm. One called Little Honey. Oh, the oak leaves. Are uh, are yeah, the oak leaf hydrangeas have these fantastic leaves, and this gold one is a really impressive yellow. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And,
2: and the double form, the snowflake. Oh, Oh yeah. It flowers for eleven and a half, maybe twelve and a half months a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's just an amazing plant. It, it has autumn colour, it's almost evergreen, so yeah. it holds on to its autumn colour until mm. the new leaves come out. Yep. Um, and you don't have to prune them hard no, like you do your classical macrophylls, Compact shrubs yeah. Yeah. and they've I've I've had flowers on mine at home and they are pretty dry in Romsey. Um you know, flowers 50, 60 centimetres long and you know these massive big Whoa. flowers like this mm. and they're fully doubled and compact and the flowers last for months and wow. months and months. And That's the one advantage of some double flowered
1: things. I'm not always a fond or not mm. always a fan of double flowers but a lot of things with double flowers, the flowers are actually sterile so they hang on the plant for longer than your classical flower would, so you get longer value out of them. So that's the only good reason for having, I think, some double flowers. There's no reason to have double flowers in some groups of plants, I Mm. believe, but anyhow, that's just me.
0: Hmm, <laughs> so, very good yeah so
1: climbing high ranges you weren't expecting to talk I about that this not morning not expecting absolutely
0: yeah. not it sounds like a great group alright
1: so have we got anybody else we need to well
0: I want to just quickly bring them so it was Anne who um, asked about the um, forest lily ah, and yes. she says it is the valthemia ah, um, that looks like a red hot poker I got the bulbs from an eccentric bloke <laughs> who told me it was forest lily yeah
3: well <laughs> there look
1: there you go. Uh, the eccentric bloke might not be wrong it could well be a common name for that particular plant but of course unless you've got a botanical name it can be really difficult to be sure you're looking up the right plant so when you've got the botanical name if you know something's a velthemia then um, you can easily google it or look it up in a book and find it without thinking twice mm. so the botanical names are really important so yeah. now that she's got the classical velthemia she probably needs the yellow one the variegated leafed one uh, Valthemia capensis, the really grey leaf one that likes more sun, and that's almost the whole genus. Mm. It's only a very it's small really genus of plants, so mm. you could hold the national collection. Mm, and put a label in it. Yeah, and put a label in it. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, so anyhow, the seed pods on those actually are quite ornamental whilst they're still Intact, so I probably wouldn't take the seed heads off on, on a velthemia until they started to fall. They're, they're quite nice too, yeah. the velthemia
2: seed heads, especially yeah. if they've they've um, been uh, pollinated. Yeah, if yeah. they right. get these sort of
1: bracty green, papery looking. They're almost like the things. honesty
2: yeah. seed heads a little
1: bit, but they're yeah. much smaller, of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, so I would leave the seed heads on and just enjoy them until they start
2: to collapse, and then I'd cut them off. Yep. And maybe even sew them and you might have something different so you can expand your national collection of <laughs> little things. A, a uh, ecology,
1: I yeah. Yes, I, I keep trying to encourage people to hold national collections. <laughs> I think it's a really good idea.
3: Uh,
1: all right. So. Oh,
0: yes. Well, I should say listening to the 3CR Gardening Show, oh, yes. I'm A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio is Greg Baldiston and Stephen Ryan. Haven't given out the number for a while, so if you want to uh, chat to us on air, or you could even just uh, ring Rose and, and she'll type it away for us on the screen. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five, or if you'd like to text us, zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. We're going through until quarter past nine, so another, another twenty minutes. Yeah, well, There's plenty of time
1: to plenty get another question time. in. Yeah. So yes, we'd love to hear from people.
0: For sure.
2: So, Greg. Yeah. I'll quickly go about through, about through X's. my Ixias. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, Seeing so as you took a picture of the lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first one's the one that we were mentioning Barney Hutton before that uh, is a seed race one from him. Uh, and again, it's one of those ones too where in the nursery trade you'll find these sold as Ixia viridiflora, and it's not. It's a it's mm. a hybrid of Ixia viridiflora, but it isn't. So in yeah,
1: true, viridiflora is very greenish in its flower yeah, colour, isn't it? So and really often really hard green. to grow. Too. Yeah, it's, oh, it's a bigger it of a thing. It always gets disease it and
2: and, mm. and often dies out. So it's as as Stephen said, the blue's not quite as intense. It's a much lighter sky blue rather than that really mm. rich duck egg greeny mm. blue. Um, but they're still pretty and they're much hardier. So mm. a clump of these, uh, you can. What I used to do is I'd plant say ten bulbs in a spot. Uh, I'd leave it for a couple of years, and then I'd go in and dig up any big bulbs that I could find and leave all the pips, and within two years, there'd be the same amount of flowering bulbs in that spot where I left yeah. the pips as there was when I, before I dug it up, plus I had you know, maybe 30 or 40 bulbs that I did dig up and planted somewhere else that were all flowering size. Okay. Um, they, the flower stalks get up to about a metre and a half tall, or can do. Um, they can be less than a metre sometimes. Um, but uh, my big crop, which I've actually planted in a black bulb crate in the paddock, and the grass gets up to chest, almost shoulder height, and these will poke up as far as, as, high as the size of grass will um, because that's pretty much where they would grow in the wild, that's yeah. sort of, even okay. though they're yeah. a hybridised plant. So it's a nice sky blue. It's got a, a sort of a dark centre, which on these ones, that the Barneys little seedling that I have, uh, is a, is a greenish-blue, darker greenish-blue centre. Um, and they're just a really good garden plant. It's, there's, it's a blue that you don't see a lot. It's It's, it's an unusual blue. It's a really
1: interesting. Closer to a true blue than most things yes, nursery yeah. sell, yep. as blue, because <laughs> yes. most people sell mauve and purple yeah, and as whatever, as yeah. blue. Yeah, we're
0: all desperate for blue. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, but
2: it's a true, but very pale It's a very pale blue. blue but it's, it's a definite blue, yeah. though. It's not, it's not like, yeah. oh, that's white, and then you get a bit closer and go, oh, no, it's actually got a bit of blue in it. This yes. is, it's blue, yeah. but it's just it's a very light
1: almost blue. almost a little bit in the same colour range as, um, oh, what's that? Blue-flowered shrubby thing that climbs <laughs> up fences and all over the place. Oh blast! I've got a mental block. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh,
0: I, know, a plumbago plumbago. Yeah, I know, plumbago. Plumbago. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: It's got that sort of yeah, pale, gentle blue of yeah. plumbago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: even even lighter, I would yeah. suggest. Hmm. So
2: so if you do buy something labelled as ixia flora and it is actually this, you're probably better off. It yeah. is actually a better garden plant, even though Viridiflora is absolutely stunning if you can oh, get it if it grow it Oh, if you can well. grow it
1: well. And some people seem to grow it yeah. well. I yeah. think if you're in the sand belts down around the coast and things, you've got a better chance with Viridiflora. Yeah. It seems to quite like that sort of sandy soils and windy exposed sites so they get less fungus diseases yes. and all that yeah. sort of stuff.
2: Um, so that's... And, and what we're also talking about with the gladiolus are so the pollinators... The Ixias in the wild have an interesting set of pollinators as well. And you can see, so I've brought three different types in today. Uh, the second one, I'm not really sure what it is. I think it's might be a here, but I've never mm. been able to track down the name, and I can't even remember where I got it. Um, but you'll notice these have opened up in the warm studio. These are a, a white with a sort of uh, uh, pink rose sort of blush to the outer petals on the tips and also quite a dark rose centre on them with black anthers. Um, but you'll notice that uh, one of the differences between the blue ixia that I bought in and this one is the perianth tubes much longer, mm. and there's all these different species of hoverflies and things mm. in South Africa with, with these huge, huge longer long noses, noses. Yes, <laughs> and these these longer perianth tubes have been evolved to, you know, deal with those pollinators, yep. or they've uh, evolved together yep. uh, to to deal with each other. Um, and then the last Ixia that I bought in, which has got an even longer perianth tube, imagine a fly carrying a beak yeah. long enough to get down. Yeah, to get yeah. down into that tube, because so it's very long. This, this is Ixia paniculata. It doesn't really even look like an Ixia in a lot of ways. It's an apricotty colour.
3: Yeah. Mm, um,
2: they're absolutely stunning plants. They seem to multiply really well. They've only mm. got very tiny bulbs, so they're like tic tac size bulbs generally. You don't, I, well, I've never found many that produce big bulbs. They're, they're always quite tiny. Um, but the perianth tubes on these are about, what's that, about five centimetres long or something yeah, like that, five yeah. or six so centimetres? So whatever long. the pollinator
1: is, whichever hoverfly or whatever or moth yeah. or whatever, yeah. has to have a proboscis that will uncurl out to that length to get to the nectaries down in the bottom of the yes. flower. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or
0: something um, very sharp and it just pierces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well,
2: there's probably that too. Yeah, but that's yeah. robbery. Yeah. <laughs> so, but th- these are really pretty ixia. They seem to be quite tough and once they've mm. established in a place... You could literally whippersnip them for 15 years, and then the one year you don't, they'll come up and and, and do their and thing. flower quite well. Yeah. So, uh, I'd, I'd be really surprised if they're
1: not a cemetery plant somewhere. Yes. There'll yeah. be cemeteries with that plant. But they're not home. weedy
2: either. No, I no, don't never, seem to be. I've never seen them. No, as I say, they produce small bulbs but they don't mm-hmm. set seed and spread around everywhere. Yeah. So they're the three Ix- Ixias I bought in with... Sort of slightly differing morphology and, and uh And certainly colours. interesting difference in colors. <laughs> yeah.
0: Very pretty, very sweet little plants. They are, yeah. And, yeah.
2: and, of course, really well suited to our climate here too, the hot, dry summers and the yep. cold, wet winters. Usually hot, dry summers. Yes, usually yes. hot, dry summers, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, well,
2: apart from this one and the last one. Because we did have a uh, La
1: Nina last year
2: as well. So we didn't really... Yeah, the later part of summer was quite sort of cool and wet. Um, The start was a bit dry, but... uh, As you say,
0: good for um, not worrying about bushfires. Yes, yes, one of the biggest advantages. Yeah. All right, the lines have gone a little bit psycho now. So let's go to Robert in Mitcham. Hi, Robert. Good morning. good morning all. Good uh, good program this morning. Good on you. uh, uh, A while back,
4: we were given a uh, a plant from someone who was moving... Uh, that that uh, big blue flowers on it. Uh, we couldn't identify what it was then by accident. My telephone, my phone actually identified it as Brunfelsia. But uh, it's got dark purple flowers on it, masses and massive masses of them at the moment. Oh, uh, Brunfelsia? Hmm. But, uh, a couple of other people have said, oh, that's uh, yesterday and, oh, yeah, and yeah, 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 it it. yeah, yeah, which is Brunfelsia, yeah. Some such thing. But, uh, and they showed me samples of that that were only little small flowers. These flowers are probably more about four inches across. Uh, are there various types of it?
0: Yes, yes. There, there's, oh, I'm not sure how many species of Bronfelsia there are, but there are probably, um, I don't know, maybe 30, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So your, your phone hasn't been able to narrow it down, obviously.
4: No, 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 it, uh, well, it gave a, a, a number of options, but uh, uh, beyond my scope of interpretation, probably. Oh,
0: okay, and does it change colour, the flower?
4: Yeah, they're changing colour at the moment. Okay, yeah,
0: okay. so that, that's what the... Um Brunfelsia latifolia, the yesterday, today, and tomorrow is known for having the the purple flowers when they come out. Then they sort of fade into more, and they fade to white. Hence, yesterday, today, yeah, and tomorrow. Yeah.
1: Well, it actually says in my phone that there is over 50 species oh, in the well, genus. Oh, There so, so, a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, there's quite a number of them. Um, and some of them don't change colour. Um, and a lot of them are in the purples and blues. So it could well be a Brunfelsia.
0: And, Robert, I use an app called Plant Snap, and I have to say it is fantastic. Whether you're taking a photo on the computer or of the plant itself, Uh, it does like a flower rather than a leaf, Uh, but I I would give that a go. Download it. It's a free app, and, uh, yeah, amazing what they can do these days. And might be able to narrow it down further for
2: you. They're going to put us out of business. I think the more people use them, the AI will actually get better at identifying as well. So... um, I think uh, some of those apps, a few years back when you'd see someone go, oh, I used it, and it said this, and it's like, well, that doesn't look anything like that. (laughs) But they they do have to evolve. The more they mm. they get used, the more uh, that uh, learning, you know, by uh, people using them, AI will learn, and it'll get better, yeah.
4: Now, this was on my phone, and I found it purely by accident. I didn't know it was there. uh, (laughs) But uh, you're also talking about uh, hydrangeas a little while ago. Yep. Uh, we, we've got a uh, an evergreen hydrangea in a pot that's not flourishing. Mm. And it's been uh, neglected to a certain extent. What can I do?
1: Well, I'd repot. Um, if you're going to keep it in a pot, uh, I would roll it out of the pot probably getting a bit late in the year to do it now I'd just leave it until the autumn uh, but I roll it out of the pot do a bit of root pruning uh, if you want to put it back in the same size pot you could get away with that or you'd put it into the next size up or whatever some fresh potting mix around it a slow release fertilizer water it in well give it one of the seaweed products to start off with uh, and hydrangeas in pots need lots of water and they need lots of feeding. Uh, if they're going to flourish. Mm. Uh, If you don't give them those things, then they will sulk. Um, I personally think most hydrangeas are better in the ground uh, once you get them to a certain size. But, you know, they can make good pot plants as long as you're prepared to put enough work in.
4: Yes, um, they need more than I... uh... I'm capable
1: of it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you may well consider planting it out. And, I mean, if we're going to seriously have a La Nina, if you just wanted to take it out of a pot and plant it in the garden, as long as you water it well for the first month or two, uh, you could probably plant it now. I wouldn't have any well, issue Well, yeah, with that.
2: The, the digging something up is a lot different to potting, yeah. uh, planting a, a, oh, a pot? pre-potted yeah. thing out. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially you if you don't have to the the disturb roots. the roots yeah. with, like, a hydrangea. Maybe not a, a tree might be a bit different because you might have to make sure it's not root-bound or something, but the Heidi's not going to worry no. about that. No. So, yeah, so as planting it out the, might be the way to go.
4: As far as the um, Panforsia is concerned, it is in the pot. That the person who gave it to us had it in the pot for some time. What should we do with it?
1: Well, again, look, pot plants are all very well, but they take a lot of work and some things will eventually become root bound and too big for a pot. And I would have thought most of the Bruns wouldn't make long-term pot plants because they get quite big.
0: Although, in saying that, I do have a dwarf latifolia. Ah, yeah. And it's probably only about 40 centimetres high. I keep it in a pot, but it does like, it's very hardy, uh, but it certainly likes being potted into new potting mix every Mm. year.
1: Yeah, so repotting is probably a good thing to do. Uh, but if you're struggling to look after your pots, then I would try and get as much stuff out into the ground as possible because long term it's a much better way of growing most plants. It's easier. Yep. It is. It's a lot easier. <laughs> mm.
4: This one's about six foot high.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like it needs to go out into the ground.
0: <laughs> thank you very much. That's no, a good pleasure. Good on you, Robert. Thank well, you. I'll be back on the, uh, uh, bye. bye for now. Okie dokie, and let's go to Jan in Richmond. Hi, Jan. Oh, good morning. I've got a really beautiful magnolia. I don't know what variety it is, but it's um, 20 years old. And um, before this year, the um, foliage, the leaves were huge. And this year, it just, um, I think one of you said sulking. Mm. I think it's sulking. It just doesn't look happy. The leaves are small.
1: There's a lot of dead wood in it, and I don't know what's wrong with it. It sounds like wet feet. Uh Uh Um, that would seem to be the most likely scenario because magnolias have thick, fleshy roots. They don't cope with wet feet well. We've had an exceedingly wet Mm -hmm. season. Um, And so I would say that's the issue. Uh, If you can, in some way or another, dig some sort of trench or drain away from the plant to try and take some extra moisture away because we're likely to get more summer storms and stuff this year, so the ground's likely to stay quite damp. So you've got to physically try and get the water away.
0: Right, thank you very much.
1: Uh, if you do that, and then I would give it a seaweed product or something like that just to stimulate the roots, um, uh, and that's about all you can do at this stage because there's no point in putting fertiliser around a sulking plant really yeah.
2: because the root system can't can take it up. Just feed the microbes that yeah. are probably attacking its root system.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the sea, seaweed products are pretty good at that sort of thing, so I'd give them some of that, uh, but I think you're going to need to try and drain away from the plant. I think that's what the problem is.
0: Great, right, thank you. Good. Oh, it's on
1: a you. Thanks, Jan. Yes, poor old Maggie's, they don't like wet feet.
0: Mm. No. They really don't. Alright, so we've got five minutes and we've got a few questions to answer. Oh, so right. uh, autumn snowflake and saffron crocus want to plant in a pot. How deep and close together?
2: Well the the crocus I would definitely plant as in a, quite a deep pot. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in the wild, crocuses are, are very deep bulbs. Yeah. Um, They're not big, but yeah, they pull themselves right yeah, down into and, and the ground. And they? It's also misleading too when you, well, I grew up with photos of crocuses in the, you know, the uh, Dutch crocus in literally a little vase hovering over water and doing yeah. quite well. Yeah, And that's fine if you wanted it to flower, but if you want to actually keep the bulb and multiply them and all those sorts of things. Uh, deep, deep potting mix, deep pots. Don't put yeah. them in shallow so pots. So define deep. So if you had, uh, so if I had, um, say, 10 or 15 saffron mm-hmm. crocus bulbs, mm-hmm. I would put those in an 8-inch pot. Mm-hmm. But about a classic one, not a shallow one. Not feet. a shallow yeah. one, yep. yeah. Not a classical spot, one. A, a yeah. classic 8-inch pot. So that's and, about 30 centimetres. And about halfway down. Halfway down, yep. Okay. Uh, and Would you say
1: the same of the autumn snowflake though? It doesn't need to be as deep. Does yeah, it? that's what.
2: That's why I thought I'd start with the, with yeah. with the crocus because the the um, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Is it acus or? Yeah, Asks? I'd say acus. Yep. Um, um, I'm not sure how
1: it's pronounced either, but that they, seems they the seem,
2: easiest way. They seem quite shallow. Yeah. Like there's something that can handle being in a mm. squat pot. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, um, so you could put them in a nice. Mm pretty little terracotta pot that's yeah. quite shallow and they do quite fine. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, yeah, the crocuses definitely, you want something that's got a bit of depth so they're well down in the ground themselves. Yeah, and, and still have room for to the roots to, to, go go to go down. Yep.
0: You know how there's some terracotta pots these days which are really tall but really narrow? Would that would the crocus go they, well in them? And
2: frittle areas would love a pot ah, like that as well. A lot of yeah, the there's quite a lot of bulbs yeah. that would actually do well if you had a, a, and, a, a, and, an extra deep pot.
0: And you could just let them pull themselves and they can out. Find,
2: so, and that's the other advantage of not disturbing your bulbs every year, especially some mm. of the species ones.
3: Yeah. yeah they, find their they find their own level. Mm. So yeah.
2: like colchicums, for instance, will be slightly stoloniferous where... You know, for five years after you've planted them, they'll, if you dig them up, they'll have these funny little lobes coming down off them. And it's like, oh, they're, they're weird. But once they find their level, they'll sort of round off a little bit and they yeah. don't have that lobe on it anymore because they don't need to move. Yeah, and okay. That, that, so, and tulips are the same. They've got retractile roots that try and uh, pull them down to the depth that they like. But yeah. also they're there because they often grow in floodplains in sandy soil where the topsoil can get washed away really quickly and then they can use they, that retractile roots to pull them to down pull up to down the right depth again. Here, yeah. safety, yeah. So um, d- deep, deep pots for the crocuses crocus. and a lot of the iris, uh, those irisy Mediterranean iris members. Yep. Um, they seem to like fairly deep pots more than you would be led to believe by pictures of bulbs in pots generally. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah the, yeah, the 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 codium, I don't think mine so much. The bi- the bigger um, spring flowering ones, I think. You just treat like daffodils. Yep. And they, you, or actually, don't need to really treat them at all. They just grow anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um. But the, yeah, the autumn flowering acus ones. Yep. I, they don't seem to need a huge. Uh, root area and not too. They down. will multiply like fury though. Yeah, and they it that with big clumps well. of yeah. them fairly quickly. And, and
0: the good thing is where, wherever you're buying them from, I mean, I know uh, Jane at Tonkin's Bulbs has got really good information on her website, and yeah. um, any any of the websites will have information on on P- how. P- PBS to uh,
2: Pacific Bulb Society have really really good database on on bulb information. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. There's not too many bulbs I've Googled and they're. Especially the rare ones, they're usually first up at the top of the list, yeah, and they usually yeah. have pretty good information, and people all over the world sending them photos and yep. different information and what they've experienced. Yep. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Hey guys, look, that is our time. Oh for my now. God, it is two quarter past. So look, thanks so much to Rose for producing the show. Uh, thanks to Greg Balderson and Stephen Ryan for coming in and sharing your fantastic knowledge. It's been an absolute treat as usual. Uh, thanks to the listeners for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. We'll be here again next week. My name is AB Bishop and it's been an absolute pleasure talking gardening. So bye-bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast